Chapter Six, Part Two of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter Six: The Star-Shaped Marks, Part Two. On the next morning, there was a fresh development in the unaccountable mystery. The nurse, Jane Cleaver who had been unfeignedly grieving for the child ever since his disappearance, had gone out and had not returned. Inquiries were immediately sent on foot with regard to what had become of her, but not a clue could be obtained as to her whereabouts. On the evening of that day I called to see Durham, and found the poor fellow absolutely distracted. "'If this suspense continues much longer, I believe I shall lose my reason,' he said. "'I cannot think what has come to me. It is not only the absence of the child. I feel as if I were under the weight of some terrible illness.' I cannot explain to you what my nights are like. I have horrible nightmares. I suffer from a sensation as if I were being scorched by fire. In the morning I awake more dead than alive. During the day I get a little better, but the following night the same is repeated. The image of the child is always before my eyes. I see him everywhere. I hear his voice crying to me to come and rescue him. He turned aside, so overcome by emotion that he could hardly speak. Durham, I said suddenly, I have come here this evening to tell you that I have made up my mind. To do what? he asked. I am going to Scotland to-morrow. I mean to visit Lady Faulkner at Bram Castle. It is quite possible that she knows something of the fate of the child. One thing, at least, is certain, that a person who has a strong likeness to her beguiled the little fellow round the rhododendron clump. Durham smiled faintly. I cannot agree with you, he said. I would stake my life on the honour of Lady Faulkner. "'At least you must allow me to make inquiries,' I replied. "'I shall be away for a few days. I may return with tidings. Keep up your heart until you see me again.' On the following evening I found myself in Invernessshire. I put up at a small village just outside the estate of Bram. The castle towering on its beetling cliffs hung over the rushing waters of the river Bramley. I slept at the little inn, and early on the following morning made my way to the castle. Lady Faulkner was at home, and showed considerable surprise at seeing me. I noticed that her colour changed, and a look of consternation visited her large, beautiful eyes. "'You startled me, Mr. Head,' she said. "'Is anything wrong?' "'Wrong? Yes,' I answered. "'Is it possible you have not heard the news?' "'What news?' she inquired. She immediately regained her self-control, sat down on the nearest chair, and looked me full in the face. "'I have news which will cause you sorrow, Lady Faulkner. You were fond of Durham's boy, were you not?' "'Mr. Durham's boy? Sweet little Robin?' she cried. "'Of course. Has anything happened to him?' "'Is it possible that you have not heard? The child is lost.' I then related all that had occurred. Lady Faulkner looked at me gravely, with just the right expression of distress coming and going on her face. When I had finished my narrative, there were tears in her eyes. "'This will almost send Mr. Durham to his grave,' she cried. "'But surely, surely the child will be found.' "'The child must be found,' I said.' As I spoke, I looked at her steadily. Immediately my suspicions were strengthened. She gazed at me with that wonderful calm which I do not believe any man could adopt. It occurred to me that she was overdoing it. The slight hardening which I had noticed before round her lovely lips became again perceptible. In spite of all her efforts, an expression the reverse of beautiful filled her eyes. "'Oh, this is terrible!' she said, suddenly springing to her feet. "'I can feel for Mr. Durham from my very heart.' "'My own little Keith is so like Robin. "'You would like to see my boy, would you not, Mr. Head?' "'I shall be glad to see him,' I answered. 
"'You have spoken before of the extraordinary likeness between the children.' "'It is marvellous,' she cried. "'You would scarcely know one from the other.' She rang the bell. A servant appeared. "'Tell the nurse to bring baby here,' said Lady Faulkner. A moment later the door was opened. The nurse herself did not appear, but a little boy, dressed in white, rushed into the room. He ran up to Lady Faulkner, clasping his arms ecstatically round her knees. "'Mother's own little boy,' she said. She lifted him into her arms. Her fingers were loaded with rings, and I noticed as she held the child against her heart that they were trembling. Was all this excessive emotion for Durham's miserable fate? "'Lady Faulkner,' I said, jumping to my feet and speaking sternly, "'I will tell you the truth. I have come here in a vain hope. The loss of the child is killing the poor father. Can you do anything for his relief?' "'I,' she said, "'what do you mean?' My words were unexpected, and they startled her. "'Can you do anything for his relief?' I repeated. "'Let me look at that boy. He is exactly like the child who is lost.' "'I always told you there was an extraordinary likeness,' she answered. "'Look round, baby. Look at that gentleman. Tell him you are mother's own, own little boy.' "'Mummy's boy,' lisped the baby. He looked full up into my face. The blue eyes, the mass of golden hair, the slow, lovely smile. Surely I had seen them before. Lady Faulkner unfastened her locket, opened it, and gave it to me. "'Feature for feature,' she said. "'Feature for feature the same. Mr. Head, this is my child.' "'Is it possible?' She let the child drop from her arms and stood up confronting me. Her attitude reminded me of Ellen Douglas. "'Is it possible that you suspect me?' she cried. "'I will be frank with you, Lady Faulkner,' I answered. "'I do suspect you.' She seated herself with a perceptible effort. "'This is too grave a matter to be merely angry about,' she said. "'But do you realize what you are saying? You suspect me, me, of having stolen Robin Durham from his father?' "'God help me, I do.' I answered. "'Your reasons?' She took the child again on her knee. He turned towards her and caught hold of her heavy gold chain. As he did so, I remembered that I had seen Durham's boy playing with that chain in the studio at Lanchester Gardens. I briefly repeated the reasons for my fears. I told Lady Faulkner what I had overheard at the Academy. I said a few strong words with regard to Madame Colucci. "'To be a friend of that woman is to condemn you,' I said at last. "'Do you know what she really is?' Lady Faulkner made no answer. During the entire narrative she had not uttered a syllable. "'When my husband returns home,' she said at last, faintly, "'he will protect me from this cruel charge.' "'Are you prepared to swear that the boy sitting on your knee is your own boy?' I asked. She hesitated, then said boldly, "'I am.' "'Will you take an oath on the Bible that he is your child?' Her face grew white. "'Surely that is not necessary,' she said. "'But will you do it?' I repeated. She looked down again at the boy. The boy looked up at her. "'Pity, lady,' he said, all of a sudden. The moment he uttered the words, I noticed a queer change on her face. She got up and rang the bell. A grave-looking, middle-aged woman entered the room. "'Take the baby, nurse,' said Lady Faulkner. The woman lifted the boy in her arms and conveyed him from the room. "'I will swear, Mr. Head,' said Lady Faulkner. "'There is a Bible on that table. I will swear on the Bible.' She took the book in her hands, repeated the usual words of oath, and kissed the book. "'I declare that that boy is my own son, born of my body,' she said, slowly and distinctly. "'Thank you,' I answered. I laid the Bible down on the table. "'What else do you want me to do?' she said. "'There is one test,' I replied, "'which, in my opinion, will settle the matter finally. The test is this. 
If the boy I have just seen is indeed your son, he will not recognize Durham, for he has never seen him. If, on the other hand, he is Durham's boy, he cannot fail to know his father, and to show that he knows him when he is taken into his presence. Will you return with me to town to-morrow, bringing the child with you? If little Robin's father appears as a stranger to the boy, I will believe that you have spoken the truth. Before Lady Faulkner could reply, a servant entered the room, bearing a letter on a salver. She took it eagerly and tore it open, glanced at the contents, and a look of relief crossed her face as her eyes met mine. They were bright now, and full of a curious defiance. "'I am willing to stand the test,' she said. "'I will come with you to-morrow.' "'With the boy?' "'Yes, I will bring the boy.' "'You must allow him to enter Durham's presence without you.' "'He shall do so.' "'Good,' I answered. "'We can leave here by the earliest train in the morning.' I left the castle a few minutes later, and wired to Dufrayer, telling him that Lady Faulkner and I would come up to town early on the following day, bringing Lady Faulkner's supposed boy with us. I asked Dufrayer not to prepare Durham in any way. Late in the evening I received a reply to my telegram. Come by first train, were its contents. Durham is seriously ill. I thought it best to say nothing of the illness to Lady Faulkner, and at an early hour on the following day we started on our journey. No nurse accompanied the child. He slept a good part of the day. Lady Faulkner herself was almost silent. She scarcely addressed me. Now and then I saw her eyes light upon the child with a curious expression. Once, as I was attending to her comfort, she looked me full in the face. "'You doubt me, Mr. Head,' she said. "'It is impossible for me to feel friendly towards you until your doubts are removed.' "'I am more grieved than I can say,' I answered. "'But I must, God helping me, at any cost, see justice done.' She shivered. At seven p.m. we steamed into King's Cross. Dufrayer was on the platform, and at the carriage door in a second— from the grave expression on his face, I saw that there was bad news. Was it possible that the worst had happened to Durham, and that now there would never be any means of proving whether the child were Lady Faulkner's child or not? "'Be quick!' he exclaimed when he saw me. "'Durham is sinking fast. I am afraid we shall be too late as it is.' "'What is the matter with him?' I asked. "'That is what no one can make out. Langley Chaston, the great nerve specialist, has been to see him this afternoon. Chaston is completely nonplussed. But—' He attributes the illness to the shock and strain caused by the loss of the child. Dufrayer said these words eagerly, and as he imagined into my ear alone, a hand touched me on the shoulder. I turned and confronted Lady Faulkner. "'What are you saying?' she exclaimed. "'Is it possible that Mr. Durham is in danger, in danger of his life?' "'He is dying,' said Dufrayer brusquely. Lady Faulkner stepped back as though someone had shot her. She quivered all over. "'Take the child,' she said to me in a faint voice. I lifted the boy in my arms. A brougham awaited us. We got in. The child, weary with the journey, lay fast asleep. In another moment we were rattling along the Marleybone Road toward Lanchester Gardens. As we entered the house, Dr. Curzon, Durham's own physician, received us in the hall. "'You are too late,' he said. "'The poor fellow is unconscious. It is the beginning of the end. I doubt if he will live through the night.' The doctor's words were interrupted by a low cry. Looking round, I saw that Lady Faulkner had flung off her cloak, had lifted her veil, and was staring at Dr. Curzon as though she were about to take leave of her senses. "'Say those words again!' she cried. "'My dear madam, I am sorry to startle you. Durham is very ill, quite unconscious, sinking fast.' "'I must see him,' she said eagerly. "'Which is his room?' "'The bedroom facing you, on the first landing,' was the doctor's reply. She rushed upstairs, not waiting for anyone. We followed her slowly— 
As we were about to enter the room, the child being still in my arms, Lady Faulkner came out and confronted me. "'I have seen him,' she said. "'One glance at his face was sufficient. Mr. Head, I must speak to you, and alone, at once, at once. Take me where I can see you all alone.' I opened the door of another room on the same landing, and switched on the electric light. "'Put the child down,' she said, "'or take him away. This is too horrible. It is past bearing. I never meant things to go as far as this.' "'Lady Faulkner, do you quite realize what you are saying?' "'I realize everything. Oh, Mr. Head, you are right. Madam, is the most terrible woman in all the world. She told me that I might bring the boy to London in safety, that she had arranged matters, so that his father should not recognize him, so that he would not recognize his father. I was to bring him straight here, and trust to her to put things right. I never knew she meant this. I have just looked at his face, and he is changed. He is horrible to look at now.' Oh, my God, this will kill me. You must tell me all, Lady Faulkner, I said. You have committed yourself now. You have as good as confessed the truth. Then the child, this child, is indeed Durham's son? That child is Loftus Durham's son. Yes, I am the most miserable woman in the universe. Do what you will with me. Oh, yes, I could bring myself to steal the boy, but not, not to go to this last extreme step. This is murder, Mr. Head. If Mr. Durham dies, I am guilty of murder. Is there no chance of his life? The only chance is for you to tell me everything, as quickly as you can, I answered. I will, she replied. She pulled herself together and began to speak hurriedly. I will tell you all in as few words as possible, but in order that you should understand why I committed this awful crime, you must know something of my early history. My father and mother died from shock after the death of three baby brothers in succession. Each of these children lived to be a year old, and then each succumbed to the same dreadful malady, and sank into an early grave. I was brought up by an aunt, who treated me sternly, suppressing all affection for me, and doing her utmost to get me married off her hands as quickly as possible. Sir John Faulkner fell in love with me when I was eighteen, and asked me to be his wife. I loved him, and eagerly consented. On the day when I gave my consent I met our family doctor. I told him of my engagement and of the unlooked-for happiness which had suddenly dawned on my path. To my astonishment, old Dr. Macpherson told me that I did wrong to marry. "'There is a terrible disease in your family,' he said. "'You have no right to marry.' He then told me an extraordinary and terrible thing. He said that in my family on the mother's side was a disease which is called pseudo-hypertrophic muscular paralysis. This strange disease is hereditary, but only attacks the male members of the house, all the females absolutely escaping. You have doubtless heard of it. I bowed. It is one of the most terrible hereditary diseases known, I replied. Her eyes began to dilate. Dr. Macpherson told me about it that dreadful day, she continued. He said my three brothers had died of it, that they had inherited it on the mother's side, that my mother's brothers had also died of it, and that she, although escaping it herself, had communicated it to her male children. He told me that if I married, any boys who were born to me would in all probability die of this disease. I listened to him, shocked. I went back and told my aunt. She laughed at my fears, told me that the doctor was deceiving me, assured me that I should do very wrong to refuse such an excellent husband as Sir John, and warned me never to repeat a word of what I had heard with regard to my own family to him. In short, she forced on the marriage." I cannot altogether blame her, for I also was only too anxious to escape from my miserable life, and but half believed the doctor's story. I married to find, alas, that I had not entered into paradise. 
My husband, although he loved me, told me frankly a week after our marriage that his chief reason for marrying me was to have a healthy heir to his house. He said that I looked strong, and he believed my children would be healthy. He was quite morbid on this subject. We were married nearly three years before our child was born. My husband was almost beside himself with rejoicing when this took place. It was not until the baby lay in my arms that I suddenly remembered what I had almost forgotten, old Dr. McPherson's warning. The child, however, looked perfectly strong, and I trusted that the dreadful disease would not appear in him. When the baby was four months old, my husband was suddenly obliged to leave home in order to visit India. He was to be absent about a year. Until little Keith was a year old, he remained perfectly healthy. Then strange symptoms began. The disease commenced in the muscles of the calves of the legs, which became much enlarged. The child suffered from great weakness. He could only walk by throwing his body from side to side at each step. In terror, I watched his symptoms. I took him then to see Dr. McPherson. He told me that I had neglected his warning, and that my punishment had begun. He said there was not the slightest hope for the child, that he might live for a few months, but would in the end die. I returned home, mad with misery. I dared not let my husband know the truth. I knew that if he did, he would render my life a hell, for the fate which had overtaken my first child would be the fate of every other boy born to me. My misery was beyond any words. Last winter, when baby's illness had just begun, I came up to town. I brought the child with me. He grew worse daily. When in town, I heard of the great fame of Madame Colucci and her wonderful cures. I went to see her, and told her my pitiful story. She shook her head when I described the features of the case, and said that no medicine had ever been discovered for this form of muscular paralysis, but said she would think over the case, and asked me to call upon her again. The next day, when in Regent's Park, I saw Loftus Durham's little boy. I was startled at the likeness, and ran forward with a cry, thinking that I was about to embrace my own little Keith. The child had the same eyes, the same build. The child was Keith, to all intents and purposes, only he was healthy, a splendid little lad. I made friends with him on the spot. I went straight then to Madame Colucci, and told her that I had seen a child the very same as my own child. She then thought out the scheme, which has ended so disastrously, she assured me it only needed courage on my part to carry it through. We discovered that the child was the only son of a widower, a rising artist of the name of Durham. Mr. Head, you know the rest. I determined to get acquainted with Mr. Durham, and in order to do so, gave him a commission to paint the picture called Soldiers Attend. You can scarcely understand how I lived through the past winter. Madame had persuaded me to send my dying child to her. A month ago I saw my boy breathe his last. I smothered my agony, and devoted every energy to the kidnapping of little Robin. I took him away as planned, the nurse's attention being completely engrossed by a confederate of Madame Colucci's. It was arranged that in a week's time the nurse was also to be kidnapped, and removed from the country. She is now, I believe, on her way to New Zealand. Having removed the nurse, the one person we had to dread in the recognizing of the child was the father himself. With great pains I taught the boy to call me Mummy and I believed he had learned the name and had forgotten his old title of Pity Lady. But he said the words yesterday in your presence, and I have not the slightest doubt, by so doing, confirmed your suspicions. When I had taken the dreadful oath that the child was my own, and so perjured my soul, a letter from Madame Colucci arrived. She had discovered that you had gone to Scotland, and guessed that your suspicions were aroused. She said that you were her most terrible enemy, and that more than once you had circumvented her in the moment of victory, but she believed that on this occasion we should win, and she further suggested that the very tests which you demanded should be acceded to by me. 
She said that she had arranged matters in such a way that the father would not recognize the child, nor would the child know him, that I was to trust her, and boldly go up to London, and bring the boy into his father's presence. The butler, Collier, who of course also knew the child, had, owing to Madame's secret intervention, been sent on a fruitless errand into the country, and so got out of the way. I now see what Madame really meant. She would kill Mr. Durham, and so ensure his silence for ever. But, oh, Mr. Head, bad as I am, I cannot commit murder. Mr. Head, you must save Mr. Durham's life. I will do what I can, I answered. There is no doubt from your confession that Durham is being subjected to some slow poison. What we have to discover. I must leave you now, Lady Faulkner. I went into the next room, where Dufrayer and Dr. Curzon were waiting for me. It was darkened. At the far end, in a bed against the wall, lay Durham. Bidding the nurse bring the lamp, I went across and bent over him. I started back at his strange appearance. I scarcely recognized him. He was lying quite still, breathing so lightly that at first I thought he must be already dead. The skin of the face and neck had a very strange appearance. It was inflamed and much reddened. I called the poor fellow by name, very gently. He made no sign of recognition. "'What is all this curious inflammation due to?' I asked of Dr. Curzon, who was standing by my side. "'That is the mystery,' he replied. "'It is unlike anything I have seen before.' I took up my lens and examined it closely. It was certainly curious. Whatever the cause, the inflammation seemed to have started from many different centres of disturbance. I was at once struck by the curious shape of the markings. They were star-shaped, and radiated as if from different centres. As I still examined them, I could not help thinking that I had seen similar markings somewhere else not long ago, but when and connected with what I could not recall. This was, however, a detail of no importance. The terrible truth which confronted me absorbed every other consideration. Durham was dying before my eyes, and from Lady Faulkner's confession, Madame Colucci was doubtless killing him by means unknown. It was indeed a weird situation. I beckoned to the doctor, and went out with him onto the landing. "'I have no time to tell you all,' I said. "'You noticed Lady Faulkner's agitation? She has made a strange and terrible confession. The child who has just been brought back to the house is Durham's own son. He was stolen by Lady Faulkner for reasons of her own. The woman who helped her kidnap the child was the quack doctor, Madame Colucci.' "'Madame Colucci?' said Dr. Curzon. "'The same,' I answered. "'The cleverest and the most wicked woman in London.' a past master in every shade of crime. Beyond doubt, Madame is at the bottom of Durham's illness. She is poisoning him. We have got to discover how. I thought it necessary to tell you as much, Dr. Curzon. Now, will you come back with me again to the sick-room? The doctor followed me without a word. Once more I bent over Durham, and as I did so, the memory of where I had seen similar markings returned to me. I had seen them on photographic plates, which had been exposed to the induction action of a brush discharge of high electromotive force from the positive terminal of a plant rheostatic machine. An eminent electrician had drawn my attention to these markings at the time, had shown me the plates, and remarked upon the strange effects. Could there be any relationship of cause and effect here? "'Has any kind of electric treatment been tried?' I asked, turning to Dr. Curzon. "'None,' he answered. "'Why do you ask?' "'Because,' I said, I have seen similar effects produced on the skin by prolonged exposure to powerful X-rays, and the appearance of Durham's face suggests that the skin might have been subjected to a powerful discharge from a focus tube. There has been no electricity employed, nor has any stranger been near the patient. He was about to proceed when I suddenly raised my hand. Hush! I cried. Stay quiet a moment. 
There was immediately a dead silence in the room. The dying man breathed more and more feebly. His face beneath the dreadful star-like markings looked as if he were already dead. Was I a victim to my own fancies, or did I hear, muffled, distant, and faint, the sound I somehow expected to hear, the sound of a low hum, a long way off? An ungovernable excitement seized me. Do you hear? Do you hear? I asked, grasping Curzon's arm. I hear nothing. What do you expect me to hear? He said, fear dawning in his eyes. Who is in the next room through there? I asked, bending over the sick man and touching the wall behind his head. That room belongs to the next house, sir, said the nurse. Then, if that is so, we may have got the solution, I said. Curzon, Defrayer, come with me at once. We hurried out of the room. We must get into the next house without a moment's delay, I said. Into the next house? You must be mad, said the doctor. I am not. I have already told you that there is foul play in this extraordinary case, and a fearful explanation of Durham's illness has suddenly occurred to me. I have given a great deal of time lately to the study of the effect of powerful cathode and x-rays. The appearance of the markings on Durham's face are suspicious. Will you send a messenger at once to my house for my fluorescent screen? I will fetch it, said Dufrayer. He hurried off. The next thing to be done is to move the bed on which the sick man lies to the opposite side of the room, I said. Curzon watched me as I spoke, with a queer expression on his face. "'It shall be done,' he said briefly. We returned to the sick-room. In less than an hour my fluorescent screen was in my hand. I held it up to the wall, just where Durham's bed had been. It immediately became fluorescent, but we could make nothing out. This fact, however, converted my suspicions into certainties. "'I thought so,' I said. "'Who owns the next house?' I rushed downstairs to question the servants. They could only tell me that it had been unoccupied for some time, but that the board, to let, had a month ago been removed. They did not believe that the new occupants had yet taken possession. Dufrayer and I went into the street and looked up at the windows. The house was to all appearance the counterpart of the one in which Durham lived. Dufrayer, who was now as much excited as I was, rushed off to the nearest fire-engine station and quickly returned with an escape ladder. This was put up to one of the upper windows, and we managed to get in. The next instant we were inside the house, and the low hum of a make-and-break fell on our ears. We entered a room answering to the one where Durham's bedroom was situated, and there immediately discovered the key to the diabolical mystery. Close against the wall, within a few feet of where the sick man's bed had been, was an enormous focus tube, the platinum electrode turned so as to direct the rays through the wall. The machine was clamped in a holder, and stood on a square deal table, upon which also stood the most enormous induction coil I had ever seen. This was supplied from the main, through wires coming from the electric lights supplied to the house. This induction coil gave a spark of at least twenty-four inches. Insulated wires from it ran across the room to a hole in the farther wall into the next room, where the make-and-break was worrying. This had evidently been done in order that the noise of the hum should be as far away as possible. Constant powerful discharges of cathode and x-rays, such as must have been playing upon Durham for days and nights continuously, are now proved to be so injurious to life that he would in all probability have been dead before the morning, I cried. As it is, we may save him. I then turned and grasped Dufrayer by the arm. I believe that at last we have evidence to convict Madame Colucci, I exclaimed, what with Lady Faulkner's confession and— Let us go back at once and speak to Lady Faulkner, said Dufrayer. We returned at once to the next house, but the woman whom we sought had already vanished. How she had gone, and when, no one knew. The next day we learned that Madame Colucci had also left London, 
and that it was not certain when she would return. Doubtless, Lady Faulkner, having confessed in a moment of terrible agitation, had then flown to Madame Colucci for protection. From that hour to now, we have heard nothing more of the unfortunate young woman. Her husband is moving heaven and earth to find her, but in vain. Removed from the fatal influence of the rays, Durham has recovered, and the joy of having his little son restored to him has doubtless been his best medicine. End of chapter 6